Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune, covering breaking news and current events as it pertains to Bible prophecy. In effect, chronicling the coming of Christ the King. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune and this special broadcast. The Queen of the South Rising. It is Brian and I's great pleasure and uh, honor to uh, be able to talk about this topic. Because the Queen of the South appears in religious texts sacred to Jews, Christians, and Muslims, described in the Bible simply as the Queen of Sheba, Modern scholars believe that she came from the kingdom of Axiom in Ethiopia, the kingdom of Sabia in Yemen, or both. Their main clue is that she brought bales of incense with her as a gift. Frankincense only grows in these two areas. So both lay claim to the Queen of the South as theirs. Given that they are separated by only 13.498 nautical miles of water, both could be right. The New Testament says it should rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the years to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something than greater than Solomon is here. Ladies and gentlemen. We need to get to the bottom of this matter straight away. We need to get to the bottom of this matter straight away. Just out today in the news, Yemeni Army rockets Saudi airport with medium-range missiles. Uh, This just came out a few hours ago. This is talking uh, Beirut local time, 3 a.m., the Yemeni Army's rocket battalion lit up the Saudi King Khalid Air Base in the Asir region on Tuesday, hitting his military installation with medium-range missiles. Ladies and gentlemen, this is getting real. This is getting live. This is getting local. And this is getting late-breaking. We need to come to grips with who the Queen of the South is. Perhaps she's someone different than the Queen of Sheba. In order to determine these things, we're going to have to look to the Bible source text themselves. The Septuagint, the Adidorogia, the Masoretic, and the Delich. We're going to have to look at them to determine what is to come. Until then, ladies and gentlemen... Lock your trays to the upright position saddle your seatbelts. Because we, your host, Brian Ingram and Matthew Miller, have oiled the saddles. We have brushed the steeds. We are ready. Why, you're going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie.
Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the End Time Tribune. A little prep on this episode this week, that's for sure. I think uh, Brian was working on this last week, actually. But let's get him in the saddle and uh, let's get an update on why we're doing this, why it's important. And by all means, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Brian just mentioned uh, on our broadcast, uh, WITC Radio, that as historical blanks are filled in by the archaeologist, we must be ever diligent to update our data. With that in mind, uh, Brian, it's good to have you in the saddle, buddy. This is this episode is is important for two reasons. We have certainly talked about the Queen of the South before, uh, but why don't you bring us up on? Uh, why we're redoing this, and the additional information that has shed light on things that we did not know before. Uh, so, uh, to start it off, uh, how you been doing, Brian? Have you had a uh, a good week? You faring well? And um, certainly uh, would like uh, an update on your wife, um, as ladies and gentlemen, her husband or her dad passed away on uh, on Purim at church. So, Brian, jump in the saddle, bud. Well, uh, doing good. have been in the midst of tons and tons and tons of work for uh, a couple of projects here. Um, how's my wife doing? It's still, I think this whole household and even her uh, Mother's household, they're still dealing with shock. This came on so suddenly that it's just completely hard to wrap your mind around. But, you know, it just goes with the age-old thing, folks. We can't live like there's no tomorrow. And at least in that aspect, there was many standout things. With her father, he definitely kept himself away from doing what was wrong and committed himself to doing what was right. So... With that respect, that's a good thing, and at least we all find peace in that. So, you know, now to kind of tip into what you brought up here, uh, as we discussed on the What is to Come program, I mentioned that uh, then that history becomes excruciatingly important in context of many of these things. And as we're going to go along here, folks, you're going to see that there has been an extensive, uh, well, in some places they'd call that a propaganda campaign, I guess, but nonetheless, there's been an extensive uh, almost cover-up here. You have to kind of get to that stage after a while to uh, get to the bottom of the uh, Queen of the South and how that matters in this day and age. Now, Matthew had brought up the two two main places that are thought to be where the Queen of Sheba has come from, and this was one of the first places I started with a long time ago because, of course, the first one you're going to get brought up is Ethiopia. Then you're going to go down that rabbit trail and find out, wait a minute, we need to look again, and... Essentially, quite a few really good historians dug into this, found out that this is indeed the uh, kingdom within Yemen, which was also known as Saba, or even referred to as the Sabian, not the same Sabian that's over in Haran in uh, 
well, I guess it's present day Turkey now. Um, it's a different group, but that's almost kind of a hit and miss because there's there's a continuity of a connection between the two of them at the time in history where things really become uh, come into question around 600 AD. And once you walk into that portion of history, that's when they really want to completely sweep this under the rug. Now, it's been stated in uh, a few circles that, you know, there's no no importance concerning this specific region uh, in end time prophecy, and it's altogether very, very different than that. And the verses that are especially going to bring this out and to the forefront, and nobody in the prophecy ter- uh, circles talks about this whatsoever. And it's going to be, basically, it starts right here in Matthew uh, 12, verse 38. And the entirety of the chapter of Matthew 12, there is so many deep prophetic and historical connotations wrapped up in this that is literally mind-blowing when you begin to look at this chapter and then look at events that are happening in the world and reconsider what is being spoken here in a whole new light. But basically we're going to touch on this area and then maybe if there's time we can bring up a few other odds and ends as well. Now starting here in uh, 12 verse 38, then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Whereas Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly. And let me point out there quick, folks, that word there for uh, whale's belly is actually a derivative from the word setis of the constellation setis. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights the heart of the earth. Now, everybody, I hope you noticed that between Jonah and between Jesus, what was being amplified on top of it was a six day period or 144 hours all right now moving into the next verse the queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of solomon and behold a greater than solomon is here and this is where it gets a little interesting as we go on the next verse When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walks through dry places, seeking rest, and finds none. Then he said, I will return into my house from where I came out. And when he is come, he finds it empty, swept and garnished. Then goes he and takes with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so, shall it be also to this wicked generation. Now, there's many layers in this last verse in this stanza alone. Folks, but notice what it said at the very end of it. Even shall it be also to this wicked generation. Now, how do we know what this this evil and adulterous generation that seek us after a sign, what is our time frame for looking at this? All right, folks, 
The men of Nineveh have not risen up in judgment at the time that Christ was walking the earth. That did not happen. Nor did the Queen of the South rise up in judgment yet. Now, if we go back, and I mean, I really hate to be Captain Obvious here, but you have to go back and consider what happened in the 60s as the um, the whole free love movement and all those things started going on. And what the word spoken here, an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. It's almost as if you're having a single little portion in history all of a sudden is being amplified. I'm going to take a breather here quick to get a drink of coffee, and I want to get Matthew's take on this. Well, Brian, I'm glad that you read that whole diatribe there. And ladies and gentlemen, let's let's just make clear. uh, What was it that Jesus did for those three days? Uh, Of course, God's word makes it perfectly clear in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. Um, He makes himself perfectly clear uh, exactly what he was doing uh, because, you know, we're point blank. He went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here here we have this idea tied up again uh, with this idea of Noah, the days of Noah being directly tied uh, to everything concerning what is to come. Now, I uh, certainly appreciate uh, everything that that Brian said, and I want to point this out, that here, uh, the Greek is very particular in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, and Luke chapter 11, verse 31. Makes it pretty clear. Delich did something that Well, he did something different. Here, uh, he uses uh, a word that technically he should not have used. Because here he uses kema. It is H8486. Now, that is, of course, the Hebrew word for south, and it should have been appropriately translated such. But when you look into the details about the Queen of Sheba, well, you find different things. If he would have followed suit with the Masoretic text, well, that's not what – that wouldn't have been the best way to put that. And let's remember here that that's what the Greek – says here in Matthew and Luke, it particularly says south. It's what it says, that's what it means. So, when we go back to the Masoretic text, 
there and take a look. Well, what did exactly it say? Did it use that word for south? Well, in First Kings in chapter 10, no, it doesn't say south at all. It says, of course, Sheba. That's what it says. As a matter of fact, uh, when you take that exact spelling and do a search for that Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible source code, it's nowhere near the two chapters concerning Sheba. So we have to stand back and realize that there's a whole lot more going on here than at first we might have thought. Because Delich is prophetically tying this up with Habakkuk, the third chapter, and his Salah moment. Because there, the word, of course, is translated south. It's not translated any other way. This is in direct reference to, of course, uh, one of the events we are waiting for. We're waiting for the sixth seal event. It shows up. Let me read it. God comes from Tema, right there. Now, let me make myself clear. The Hebrew New Testament doesn't say Sheba. It says Taman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Right here. Right here we have the exact phrase that Delich used. Instead of Sheba, re remember, why doesn't the Adidal Regia say Sheba? Why does it say South? So, up front, God's wanting to hide this. He's wanting to keep this secret. He's wanting to keep it safe. Because beyond any shadow of a doubt, he knows there's going to be great consternation with this subject today. Now, I really read some humorous posts today, absolutely humorous, uh, about the Queen of Sheba and the argument today. Uh, I want to be very polite when I say this. Um, from certain communities, because they are uh, a self-appointed, separated so-called Christian community. Uh, they also claim Sheba as their own. Uh, they say there's a whopping big difference between Jews and Hebrews. And of course this is, it's really frustrating when you see how, how deep this deception goes. But ladies and gentlemen, this is also incorporated to other texts concerning this exact prophecy that I just read from in Habakkuk's Selah moment. It's in Obadiah. And of course, Brian and I have went to great lengths to explain to you 
the Moshiim, they're right here. This is the finality, the final circuit of the Emmanuel prophecy is right here in, o in Obadiah. And in the ninth verse, it says, Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Temon, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. So, when you keep backing up and taking another look at what's going on here, why is this used multiple times in the book of Zechariah? Ladies and gentlemen, here, once again, you have to understand, prophetically, the Hebrew New Testament is pointing you directly, once again, to the great day of you sitteth upon the throne. We know those are the six seals, right? Why is this in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 6, with one of which... The black horses were going forth to the north country, and the white ones go forth after them, while the doppled ones go forth to the south country, or prophetically, Taman. So, this particular data set about the queen of the south is two sides of the Bible, God's holy word. And when you realize, oh my goodness, he's giving you a fantastic amount of information, technically, because of course, the Greco Bible source code in the Septuagint calls her Seba, Sheba. Yet, the Hebrew side of the coin speaks very prophetically about, well, Yemen, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's what Teman is. To the Hebrews, of course, we know all about Operation uh, Magic Carpet, where the Israeli defense forces went down and rescued all of those Jews in Yemen. So this is very important, and I must say this right now. Over on the BibleSourceCode.com, just BibleSourceCode.com, I have a tab over there labeled the Bible Source Code. You click on that. And you have uh, an iPhone, you don't have a laptop or a computer, the very top links there will give you direct connections to the source text of the Bible, God's Holy Word. I've got the Greek there and the Hebrew with explanation. So if you'd like to go over there right now while we're live, you can. If Brian starts talking about the Hebrew, you can just hit that link. It will open up in a new tab. And you'll be able to scroll through there and check out exactly what Brian's talking about. Let me read the next verse in Zechariah. When the strong ones went out, they were eager to go to patrol the earth. That is one of the greatest understatements I think I've ever heard in direct relation to the writers of Revelation. And once you realize that, oh my goodness, in more ways than once, the reason why 
the Hebrew New Testament wants you to see something else, you begin to realize it is directly tying the Queen of the South to the six seals. There is absolutely no way around it. Especially when you realize how Amos starts out. Verse 12. So I will send fire upon Timon, or south. That's, that's also can be south. And it will consume the citadels of Basra. Well, let's take into consideration, ladies and gentlemen, that, well, is it saying Basra or is it saying fortresses? Okay? You have to realize we're trying to read Hebrew to you. You can't translate that into English. There is absolutely no way to do it. So, now that I hope I've brought your attention to how critically important it is that you understand who, what, where, when, why of God's word, because you have to understand, this should be very important to you that we are told in John that the spirit of truth would come to the children of the Lord, the technon epigalia, the children of the promise, for the illicit purpose of showing her what is to come. And like I said, that means who, what, where, when, why. And when you understand the two coins of this, oh my goodness, the wealth of information that you can learn that you can understand what's going on. So, Brian, let me take a break. Now, I'm going to grab myself some coffee uh, because I've emptied my cup while you were talking the first time. Very important, ladies and gentlemen. This is no joke. I noticed something today when I was reading through Post. It seems that Every important topic that Brian and I have ever discussed since 2010 has sprung up since that time a major deception concerning it. This is one of them. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've had people on the End Time Tribune. I have been on their broadcast, and now they are nothing more than Afro-American Nazis. I mean, they've gotten to the point where it blows me away. Even though the Bible, God's Holy Word, comes out and tells you in the Greco Bible source code that the earth is actually a gyro. Since 2010, since I did major broadcasts on multiple shows, not including my own, 
illicitly about the sixth seal event in Isaiah 24. All this has come about since then. Brian and I have been on air with people that right now, major false teacher websites have come out and labeled these people not only heretics, but cults, because they do things like deny the Trinity. Let me call that to your attention. You're going to see mass deception, and I mean major cult-like activity arise concerning every topic directly related to Revelation chapter 6 and the six seals. And let us not forget the seventh. But of course, that's during a different time. Brian, jump back on here. Give me a break, please. Uh, I think I got everybody setting up straight and paying really close attention to what you're saying because this is important, and it's important to me and my family. So I would hope that they would consider it important enough for their families. Brian? Yep, and... This is where I got to basically touch on a couple of uh, areas, folks, because before we get into the Queen of the South, we have to realize something that is crucially important. Uh, these two events are connected. One states, Nineveh shall rise up in that day. And then you go down further, and then it states the Queen of the South shall rise up. Let's talk about Nineveh here real quick. Now, we covered uh, the battle for Mosul, actually, in two variations and videos on the YouTube channel. It's the Bands of Time YouTube channel. And we specifically called it the Battle of Nineveh for a purpose. Now, you will find out, once you go just straight to the uh, Battle of Mosul Wikipedia um, for 2016 through 17. This caught me by surprise. We did not know they did this. The offensive dubbed Operation We Are Coming Nineveh. And you turn around and you confirmed the source. And here we go over to, we have the Atlantic.com, which is one of them. On the second and third days of the operation, dubbed Kedanim Yah We Are Coming Nineveh. By a body who is the Iraqi leader. Then you have several other sources that go in to say the same thing. Matthew had pulled up four different sources that night. And we did a program on this a while back that was in a podcast form. We don't have that posted any longer, unfortunately. But to briefly summarize this so people understand, is let's take a look at Daniel 11. Verse 30, because this was the immediate moment, folks, that we, I essentially had stated on air at that time, folks, we need to watch Cyprus. If we start seeing warships all of a sudden scramble to Cyprus, we know that we need to start watching for the next phase. Within little to next to no time because of a chemical weapon that was used in Syria, exactly that very thing happened. They scrambled warships from around the world to Cyprus. And 
So we start here right at verse 30. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, therefore shall he be grieved, return and have indignation against the holy covenant, so shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Now I need to bring this back over. Now if you go in and you look at the Greek for verse 31, we'll just go with the simple English uh, translation of this for the time being from the uh, Charles Thompson um, Old Covenant and New Covenant as he refers to it. Because he states exactly what it says right here in the Greek. And seeds out of him will spring up. That Greek word is essentially spermatos. And seeds out of him will spring up, and the sanctuary of the dominion will be polluted, and the daily sacrifice will be removed, and there will be set up an abomination which hath caused desolation. Now, taking this very first part, I'm going to have to get my hands on this again, but you can actually see when the Assyrian came in and he moved certain groups from Arabia, and this is very important, folks, that you need to understand the realities of what we're referring to as Arabia in ancient times as opposed to what was refer, is referred to as today Saudi Arabia. That border was not set in place until within was either at the beginning or at the end of World War One or World War Two. I don't recall exactly which one offhand, but it was known in uh, the ancient texts up till the time of the Romans. You would see that referred to as Arabia Petria. Now I, I've said this time and time again when we did a video concerning Eden. I pointed out, folks, you have to know your old geography and how the maps were set up at that point in time otherwise you're going to walk into a land of confusion and this is already the big thing where everybody gets completely turned around and confused because they want to say with this you know this infamous uh pseudo historian archaeologist that has spread nothing but a bunch of false garbage has tried to convince everybody that the uh, mount sidai is um Jabal al-Laws in Saudi Arabia, and then they turn around, they try to justify it by saying, well, it's stated um, through Paul that it was in Arabia. Yes, that's correct, old Arabia, but it does not say Saudi Arabia, which is a new designation for that geographical location, folks. Making matters worse, Jabal al-Laws and this is newer documentation that has come forward. They found out that this is late-era Nabataean archaeological finds that are around this area where they're trying to tell everybody this is Mount Sinai. As you're going to see when we go forward, they did the very same thing again concerning Petra. Or concerning Paran. Oops. Petra is a different story. We will get to that. But. Going back around to this, as I stated, the Assyrian came in, he took many groups of people, displaced them from Arabia, and moved them all over the place. And it is atypical, well, forces from his seed shall arise. Then we come to, I believe it was 2015, when ISIS took the essential strike where they hit 
Mosul and then moved up into Syria. And we see much of the conflicts going on now that are derived through the conflicts with ISIS. And this is where they're putting together massive coalitions. We have allies shifting places all the way through here. And even if you go in and look at Syria, the amount of treachery that's going on there is a little bit off the charts. And as Matthew and I discussed last night, you're going to find out that treachery seems to be a common theme in the news as of lately. Nonetheless, there is documentation from every one of these groups that were taken by the Assyrian and moved. And as you go through there, you're going to find out many of these people were from the Arabian groups. So already we have the seed from the Assyrian at that point in history mixed in with. But this goes hand in hand with the next statement with the Queen of the South. Because it is all through so through that same seed, which we're going to find out it's one and the same seed as the seed that came through the Assyrian. And most of you are going to be shocked by that statement and the things that are going to be brought up as we go forward because there's been an explicit cover job and they will go out of their way to make sure you can't find this out. So much so that if you go into the Wikipedias, you're going to find out they start altering things and putting ridiculous pieces in there to try to cover their tracks. Like last night where I spent probably about five hours dealing with DNA and genetics and lo and behold, come to find out a few hours later, the little sidetrack they tried to get you to go in the wrong direction actually happened to be the Kohenin bloodline, or as they'll refer to it, even the bloodline from Aaron, which will come up in the Wikipedia articles. So they are going out of their way to make sure that you do not know how the Queen of the South, how Saba, Yemen, is excruciatingly important in this day. Now, Matthew, do I have you back, or do I need to continue uh, in the meantime? No, I'm right here. All right, no, I'm, I'm right take here. a little breather here. <clears throat> Is it all right if I go back to my prior diatribe just a little bit? All right, if I do that? Do what needs to be done. Okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, th- th- this is how bad it is. Now, I- I'm sorry to have to point this out, but I must. I'm going to read direct quotes from a news article. Uh, matter of fact, straight from the Smithsonian website. The people in Israel now are Jews, not Hebrews. Black people are the real Hebrews. And get your facts straight. Well, tell that to the gay people of the world today that God is a living being, and in English, living beings are either male or female. Greeks are not to be trusted. What do they know when everything they know came from Africa? Black women are the creators of the world. Look around you. Ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about the Queen of Sheba, okay? Let's talk about what she's talking about. She's, of course, talking about the Izana Stone. That's where she gets her claim, and I hate to tell her, but one of the sides, the entire sides of the Azana stone is in Greek. 
So they build this stair step. The Bible, God's holy word, is a lie. The church fathers are liars. Going all the way back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Peter, everybody. The only thing you can trust is what comes out of their mouth. And I do not appreciate the simple fact they have to go to blasphemy. Every deception must inevitably bark themselves up the tree until they find themselves at the top in outright heresy. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not a woman, nor does he have any feminine qualities. God is certainly not a black woman. This is a psychosis. Because these people hate the simple fact that Christ the King came down and voluntarily sacrificed himself for white people and brown people and Eskimos and Russians. They hate his guts for that. Just like the other deception that led directly to heresy. Ladies and gentlemen, whether you like it or not, there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the actual Bible, God's Holy Word, which is comprised of only the original source text, nothing in English is the Bible, God's Holy Word. Nothing in German, nothing in Latin, nothing, nothing in French. But this is the tree they must bark themselves up until they find themselves at heresy for the sake of becoming popular. I want to bring your attention to something that I read. I want to bring your attention back to what the Hebrew New Testament, what it calls the Queen of the South, Taman. I told you that exact spelling was, of course, in the first chapter of Amos. And everybody had questions behind the scenes, right? What is Basra? What is Basra? Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what H6869 is? Well, the Mickelson Hebrew Dictionary calls it uh, its first definition is tightness, figuratively trouble. Its second definition is transitively a female rival. Because, ladies and gentlemen, when you put, when you make it feminine and give it a bet prefix, Basra is nothing more than a female rival. This topic 
you were told thousands of years ago in the Bible, God's holy word, which is only the source text. This would have everything to do between the wise and foolish builders, or the wise and foolish virgins. Okay. What else can I call them? Ah, yes. The sheep and the goats. Now take note, ladies and gentlemen. Let's use the example of sheep and the goats. Those are both in his flock. They're both in his flock. How do you think they get up in his face? And he, of course, nukes half of them. This, of course, has everything to do with Karaz's rebellion. This has everything to do with Genesis chapter 38. This has everything to do with it because in these end times, who are you warned is going to betray you? It's going to be the foolish builders. It's going to be the foolish virgins. Do I need to go on? This is massively important that you understand the Queen of the South is massively important to end-time Bible prophecy, and this is exactly why these God-haters are coming up with these cults to contradict everything he has to say. Which is what? The days of Noah? We know that. Queen of the South? We know that. Jonah? We know that. Nineveh? We know that. This is the whole reason why Christ the King gave you these details. This is why all of these events tie directly back to Habakkuk Selah moment and the sixth seal event. The great day of you setteth upon the throne. And it amazes me that this person was babbling about things she didn't even know about because her claim to the Queen of Sheba is directly from the Ezana stone, which on one side is written in Greek. And she does not realize that she started out in a God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And then she started being separated and separated. I'm sure the first thing that they did was convince her that only black people could be saved. Then they took her a little bit farther and said, no, only American black people can be saved. Then they spent weeks upon months upon years to convince her that somewhere God must have said that he was male and female. Oh, no, he didn't. And you are doomed indeed to believe such lies. So please, 
please, please, please take this very seriously because what about your family? What about your your mom? What about your dad? What about your brother? What about your sister? What about your wife? What about your husband? Do you really want them to be a goat in the flock? Please think about such things. Surely you care about your loved ones if you don't care about yourself. Surely. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord God of hosts. He is the one. That's what we loudly proclaim here on the End Time Tribune, ladies and gentlemen. You need to think about that for about eight minutes and 40 seconds.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the End Time Tribune. It is a privilege to be here with you broadcasting all over the planet. <clears throat> and our uh, friends in Syria uh, wanted me to mention them on air. Uh, may the good Lord be with you and others there in Turkey. Ladies and gentlemen, we have listeners both places. And we're very lucky that they are able to listen to the entire Tribune, as well as all the other listeners spanning this entire globe. Uh, it's quite an honor and a privilege to be able to serve the Lord in thus fashion. Let's get Brian back in the seat in the saddle, and uh, let's get right back to it. And let me uh, apologize if maybe I got a little bit too emotional there before the break. It's not my intention to make anybody angry, lose the temper. I am sorry about that. Uh, Brian, once you get back in the saddle, and let's get straight back to it. We need to find out who the Queen of the South is. Well, what I, you know, and just to touch on, we just had a private discussion concerning this, folks, and you got to understand that this is a wholesale effort that has been going on extensively. You really start finding it turning up. Um, you start finding it turning up sometimes near the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, but even more so as you go forward into history when uh, Nazi Germany came along and so forth. You have got a massive amount of various forms of nationalism, or even as uh, Matthew pointed out in our discussion, even elitism, which is coming in, and this is distorting so many historical texts. It is just absolutely ridiculous, and it makes my work at times almost ten times harder. Now, a couple weeks back, I had brought up you know, the importance of what's going on with Macedonia and the Balkans right now, and I made a miss. Um, I stated something wrong, and this is because of the propaganda that has taken place against just about every major key player in the last days that has been saturated with this. You know, and I made the comment that they had probably come from Slavic roots, but you'll end up finding out that they basically, a campaign was started against the original, um, you know, ethnic, I guess is the word they'll use in this terminology, but, you know, of the table of nations I would prefer to use, um, from Yvonne, a.k.a. Macedonia, what happened is this started at around the time of uh, Nazi Germany. You had that version of the nationalism came in. Then you had the Greek side of the nationalism come in. And then you had the um, Pan-Slavism portion of the nationalism come in. And it really has distorted the entirety of trying to figure out who is who. And you're going to find this everywhere. You're going to deal with this when you're dealing with the text of India. You've got the whole Aryan invasion. That's one of those circumstances I don't even want to deal with half the time because it just gets absolutely insane with that whole debate and argument. You get, you look at it and you see certain points where you go, they've got good points on both sides. But you find this saturating everything, and it's getting um, even worse as we go along as even you know some independent authors start releasing material on their very specific nations and so forth. You're even seeing it you know, meld its way into that material as well. So it's 
it's everywhere. This nationalism has been flaring for some time, but it's just completely out of control now. So, you know, that is the best way to absolutely explain the entirety of what was brought up there. Well, let me... So, you know, and let's... Go ahead. Let me clarify, ladies and gentlemen. The first rider is nationalism. Okay? Just like in Germany. The second rider, of course, is the elitism. Ladies and gentlemen, so please understand, that's why God tells us that. First, a nation will rise up, and in it, it will be, what does he say next? Tribes. It will literally destroy itself, just like the Nazis did. I mean, you realize at the end of the Nazi campaign, they desperately needed all of the German-Jewish men on the front lines. Back to you. Well, and that's just the whole the whole thing because quite literally, the more we look at what is going on here with the Queen of the South, folks, you're going to find out this is covered in such a heavy-duty amount of almost – it's a form of nationalism in and of itself, but it's also quite different. Nonetheless, it's a massive deception all the way across the board. And, folks, look, we fell into this trap. We fell into this trap when we did – a program concerning Mount Peron and Habakkuk 3. So it's easy to fall into these traps, folks. It is very, very difficult in all areas now to really discern what is going on. We have the saturating the news, the historical text. This goes on and on for days. It's getting to the point where it's absolutely insane. And if your foundation is not firmly, firmly, built upon the Bible, you're going to get thrown into these different areas. And even as much so with the amount of deception going on, it is still sometimes difficult to see past the insanity that's taking place. So, you know, and this is where we start to clear up this whole mess. Because they want the Queen of the South hidden from you. They want the importance of this prophecy completely wiped away. And unfortunately, like I said previously, this started as early as 600 A.D. Now, before I go into this diatribe, though, I want to point something out, folks, because this is not meant to be used as ammunition whatsoever against our current circumstance and situation with the refugees that are fleeing everything that is happening throughout Syria that's happening in... Iraq, as we speak, that's happening over in Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, or let's just go into the entire list that the uh, commander-in-chief had released previously with his list of seven nations, and then he moved it down to six. Okay, this is not justification for this, folks. You're going to take that word. If you run that Hebrew word for Arab, you're going to find it in the Exodus and find out it's in there encoded into the word of a mixed multitude of the foreigners that came out with. So this is not justification for us to say, well, all the uh, quote-unquote refugees are evil and we need to not take the role of the Good Samaritan. It has nothing to do with that. So keep that kind of nonsense out of your mind right now. That's 
irregardless of the fact of what we're dealing here with the historical documentation. Now, with that said, moving forward, one of the key crucial and major targets that they had to hit first in order to do this is if you just bring up the, uh, even if you bring up the uh, Wikipedia article for the Desert of Paran, that was one of the first deadpan hits. They tried to hit Sure as well because you will see that Ishmael also came, went into the wilderness of Shur, and if you look at the maps, you're going to end up finding out that this is by the Suez Canal, right up against the border of where ancient Egypt ended by that course of the Suez Canal, which, you know, once again, we go to the whole Red Sea argument and then Yom Suf, but nonetheless, you're going to find out that there's a multitude of historians, archaeologists, and so forth that have gone to painstaking means to show exactly what the Yom Soup is. And I guess that's a different topic for a different time. Nonetheless, this is the absolute first target. Now, why is Ishmael at the foundation of this? Look, folks, whenever you have brought up the word Muslim or Muhammad and so forth, immediately your mind in this day and age is automatically going to go to Ishmael. That's what they have got sunk into our minds. But the reality of this becomes very different once you begin to realize what's going on here. Now, for instance, here, as I was stating before with the Wikipedia article with Paran, it states right in here in the Arabic traditions, for Arabic people, Muslims to link Paran with Mecca is imperative for the very existence of Islam as a religion. An Arab geographer mentioned in the book that the Red Sea branches into two at the extremity of Hejaz, a place called Faran. And once again, folks, that's even where I brought up before. Having the proper crossing point is actually crucial. The association of Paran in Genesis 21:21 with Ishmael and the Ishmaelites is affirmed by another Muslim geographer. I Quran, an Arabized um, Hebrew word, one of the names of Mecca mentioned in the Bible. Muslim and Arabic traditions hold that the wilderness of Quran is boldly speaking the Hejaz, northern half of Tiamat, stretching along the east of the Red Sea, starting from the Jordan and the Sinai, that the specific site where Ishmael settled is that Mecca near the mountains of Quran. We've talked enough about this. Unfortunately, even um, Emmanuel Velikovsky got pulled into this trap. And that's where, you know, we had even got pulled along with this because there's a lot of work that Emmanuel did concerning tearing apart and getting into the bottom of history, which is very good. But he also made a lot of mistakes in the meantime. And I've, I've got a huge list of those. So he did good work. He didn't intentionally try to do bad work. It's just sometimes he got pulled into these same traps. Now, as you look, well, I mean, I guess first let's uh, let's get to where is Paran. You will end up finding out that the boundary between the deserts of Paran and Zin was an ancient holy mountain where the nomadic descendants of Abraham had worshipped El Shaddai, but whom they now identify with Yahweh. 
the broad flat top summit and sandy plain below were scattered with stone altars, blackened standing stones from the bygone age of Abraham's concubines from the early uh, Bronze Age to the Middle Bronze Age. One, Bedouin tradition calls the place Jabil Abed, which Arabic scholars believe means either mountain of the multitude or of the preparation or mountain of commemoration. The modern Israelis have dubbed it Har Karkon, Saffron Mountains. And uh, this was findings from uh, David Roll in his book, The Lost Testament, published in uh, 2002 from pages 223 to 227. And if you go and look up this mountain, uh, Har Karkon, you will actually go into the Wikipedia and find out he's dead on the mark. It states everything he pointed out here, but I forgot it's not easy to find in the English language. But once again, you'll have this. It's all right here in the article. It'll tell you that's exactly where it is. So now you have basically the border between the two, between uh, Paran and Zin. So now you have a border point for the starting of Paran. And you'll go through great lengths if you start looking deeper and deeper and deeper into Paran. You start looking at the Exodus routes. You really get to the stage you cannot come to any other conclusions. But as I stated, our pseudo-historian on top of it made matters worse by putting Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. So ancient geography across the board, folks, is what you have to understand. Now, I looked even into Mount Paran that comes up there Um in the Shiganoth prophecy from Taman until Mount Paran. And I'm going back into even the uh, Jewish encyclopedia from a 1923 version, I believe, off the top of my head. It'll point out to you that Mount Paran, the most likely location, is about 50 miles west of ancient Petra. So, you know, folks... Those of you interested, I encourage you to keep digging and looking deeper and deeper into this because it is actually quite fascinating. Nonetheless, this is where we run into this problem, starting where historical documentation has been severely messed up during that time and age. Um, you will go through and find out that as far as Mecca being mentioned and even that location whatsoever is never mentioned as any city, any port of call, any stop along the trade routes because they had to set all these areas up in certain specific locations because you could only even take the camels so many days without them having to stop for water. You end up going through geographers of Alexander the Great. No mention of this place at all. Nothing. And it go, you can go in and list all of that. We have uh, one, another one of these here of uh, Alexander Theophostros, uh, Arenthesis Survey. And let's see what else. I mean, this list just goes on and on and on. This goes into, basically for time-wise sake, this basically goes into the Roman geographers and just continuing throughout history, there is no mention whatsoever of this city of Mecca or even the Kaaba being in that place until 500 A.D. And even the architecture has been confirmed that, that it's all from 500 A.D. So, you know, folks, you can look into this on top of it as well. 
You know, like I said, you've got continual sources that are saying time and time and time and time and time again that Mecca did not exist until then. And you can sit there and search these out over and over and over again. So right here already, we've had a distortion come into play so that we can't see the reality of where Peron should be. Once again, this happening, this completely throws our understanding off concerning the proper geographical location as far as a prophecy is concerned. They've done this with tribes or people groups or from the table of nations. They completely obscured them. And the mass targets I've seen over and over again are the key end time players. And they've done this even with geographical locations. And it's been done through a multitude of places throughout the world by a multitude of different people groups, religions, whatever it may be. So right there, we got Paran taken out of the equation. This begins to make us all of a sudden start questioning Ishmael. Because as it even states in here, their entire religion is based off of this. The whole entire thing is based off the fact that Ishmael went here. But yet if Ishmael did not go to Mecca and him and Abraham did not build the Kaaba as what is stated in their texts, then we need to start questioning the rest of the narrative. Actually, I'm going to take a break here and let Matthew have you comment on that bit, and then we'll move into the next section, because I want to think a little more thoroughly before we walk into that part. Okay, not a problem. Of course, I'm ready, willing, and able. Uh, you just talked about Mount Paran. Let me point out <clears throat> to everybody something critically important about Mount Paran. <clears throat> when you look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, and the impact point. You have to understand that the Hebrew is extremely prophetic, you see, because that is nothing more than H6286, to beautify or to glorify. Coupled, of course, with a final noon. Para. Para. That means to beautify or glorify. You put a final noon on that word, and it becomes third person plural feminine possessive. It means their beautification. It means their glorification. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> come and see. Ladies and gentlemen, come and see. You have to be able to see the code. You have to be able to see it and understand it. And the very first thing you need to learn about Hebrew is really it don't go too much farther past three alphanumerical integers. Because remember, there are no Arabic numerals in Hebrew. So it's either a letter or a number. Take your pick. Sometimes, of course, there are Hebrew words that have four integers, but very rare. So, this is the whole reason why God 
took from them their vows. This is why the prophecy is going to be fulfilled that we will, we will be given a pure language. He's not going to do much more than give you the vows so you know what they are. Now remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is prophetically why it is critically important that you understand to ignore their jots and tittles, their diacritics, the kamats, the shavah, the chaf, all those little dots and, and tittles you see them put around the Hebrew letters. That's how they think it's pronounced because they have no idea how to pronounce it. Now, Brian and I have talked about this on prior broadcasts. The closest thing you can get to it, of course, everybody knows, is what the Samaritans speak. But they pronounce it different than the Ashkenaz, than the yada, 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 yada. This is academically known. We have no idea how to pronounce God's word, the Holy Bible. We have no idea. We have no idea. So prophetically, I think I just upped the ante on what Brian is trying to say. Now, all of you who heard me discuss the simple fact that from the Kaaba is 666 nautical miles to the foundation stone. And you have to understand that the hill that surrounds it is circular. That's where the crescent comes from on their flags. And, of course, there's a cave up there that's supposed to be holy and yada, 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 yada. We also know from the archaeological documentation that one particular mountain not too far from there, of course, was a serious cache of gold. So, ladies and gentlemen, this research that Brian has done is critically important. It's critically important. That you understand these things are contained in the Bible source code and in the Bible source code alone. Alone. I mean, concerning these very topics, you know, let's talk about Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, ladies and gentlemen. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. When you look into the code, ladies and gentlemen, to see exactly what is being said there. To shine here is critically important. You see that as H2094. And it is. It means to glean, to enlighten. To instruct, to shine, to illuminate. Okay? But you have to understand here, it's got prefixes and suffixes on it. That's why you need to understand this. That's why that exact word is only in the code twice, Daniel 12, 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 31 
That's why it's there. It's the last word in this verse. For you can all prophesy one by one. So that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Right there. In the Hebrew Bible source code, that last word is exactly the word used in Daniel 12, chapter 3. So you have to realize that Hebrew contains most of the prophetic data that we need. The technical data is usually found on the other side of the coin in the Greek. So this instance, this place, this time of Mount Paran is extremely important. And that's why Brynus went to great lengths to try to decipher who, what, where, when, why is God coming to Mount Paran? Why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Why? Let's continue on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent. In the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is proper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? Ladies and gentlemen, you have to understand that here, he's giving you technical data. He's also giving you massively prophetic data about his bride. Let's, let's put her a different way. He's giving you detailed information prophetically about his wise version. He's giving you prophetic information about his wise builders. He's giving you prophetic information about the children of the promise. Important that you begin to open your eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, God is going to ride a super Levitic cloud to Mount Paran. And when he does, Isaiah chapter 24 is coming true. The sixth seal is going to come true. The entire book of Obadiah is coming true. It's coming. That is exactly what is to come. Brian, back to you. 
if you're ready to step back up to the plate, please. I think I shed some prophetic light uh, there on Mount Peron for you uh, to back up what you were saying. So jump back in here, bub. Well, and I mean, just to reiterate, it's key crucial that people understand that this is located in what is today the modern Sinai Peninsula. Um, it is now part of the border of Egypt, but that border was not the same in ancient times. As I said previously, um, before in ancient times, that border went up from one side of the Nile, even stretching up as far as the Suez Canal, whereas the Valley of Shinar, no, once again, it's in, or not the Valley of Shinar. I'm looking at something else. My mind went there. Um, the Sinai Peninsula is, you know, the major point we need to look at first. And as I stated, you will come to find out that in ancient texts even, it spoke of this location as Mount Paran, which the um, Jewish scholars even back as uh, early as 1923 had pointed out the best they could locate was an approximation of probably 50 miles west of Petra. And Petra, folks, is really important. And we'll get to that one in a different study in a different day. Now we need to get moving back into the Queen of South here. Who exactly is the Sheba that is spoken of? Because, folks, <laughs> there's quite a few references to Sheba as we look at the Table of Nations. So we got to kind of whittle this down and figure out who's who. In the process, we're also going to learn about ancient sister cities. Right here, we start out with the genealogy of Ham. In uh, Genesis 10, verse 6, it starts, And the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Sabah, and Havilah, and Sabatah, and Ramah, and Sabtikah. And the sons of Ramah were Sheban and Dedan. Now, we can stop right there. Because in Yemen, where the Sabian kingdom, where the Sheba's kingdom was, they have found a multitude of inscriptions in the ancient Sabian, Sabian language that will point you right at Rama. So these are sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. If you keep going here, folks, depending on your translation, you're going to find out, of course, we go into Nimrod and then... Midstream in verse 11, it should be properly translated as out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and Rehoboth and Kalah and resin between Nineveh and Kalah, the same as a great city. Some of them will try to say, and Nimrod went out and built these cities. So it's you got to get into the Hebrew to see what's really going on there, folks, because it's telling you emphatically. And where is the flashpoint of the retaking of Nineveh that is happening right now as we speak, which the main force being used in this besides the Iraqi forces, and now we have a lot of Shiites in the mix with the Kurds, but the flashpoint, the beginning point where these Kurds have their capital right now, um, with uh, I believe it's um, Peshgarma, Kurdish people, is in Erbil. You'll find out that that transfers to many names. Throughout history, Erbil, then it goes to Adabin. It was part of the Achaemenid Assyrian satrapy that was still ruled over by ancient Assyrians, descended through Shem, 
at that point in time. It went through the name of Adabine, and this goes on and on and on, but you will find out that one of these cities that's listed here that Asher built is indeed the same city, and I don't have my notes from when I did all that work, but nonetheless, it's one of these cities listed. I believe it was, uh, it might have been Beth, but I'm not positive. But nonetheless, now we have proper connotation of who is who in this mix. But this gets important to understanding how it is that they moved out of these regions after the Table of Nations and showed up in here. Okay, we had many of the uh, Kushites were living around the area of India, and we went into great detail explaining all of this before. But Sheba and Dadan specifically had come out through those trade routes that were going down the Indus River and then basically into the Indian Ocean through the Persian Gulf up into the Red Sea and then had essentially moved up into Yemen. So this is stretching way back after the Tower of Babel event happened. And what is rather ironic, because Matthew brought this up earlier and I had to kind of giggle a little bit, you'll find out that actually myrrh and frankincense also do come from India, folks. So... Irregardless of the fact, it's also native to the continent of Arabia as well. But yes, this is the, that was the flashpoint. That's how they moved there. They moved there very early in history, and that's where the kingdom of Saba or Sheba was set up. So now we have a little bit of a um, understanding going back to the Table of Nations of who they are, where they came from, and. Genetic testing is a little rough in this neighborhood in the part of the woods because the unfortunate problem being is the sampling that they're using for their DNA and genetic testing is only a small portion of people. It's like 157 people were used in Saudi Arabia and you have like 60 that were used in Yemen. So it's very hard to use that documentation to completely and validly make a point. But you do see in at least the tiny amount of what is there that you'll find the Northern Arabians and Southern Arabians definitely share a lot of the same genetic traits. So, and that does become case crucial here. Now, why do we keep going on and on and on and on and on about Sheba, Sabah, when we're looking at the roots of the uh, bloodlines through which Muhammad came? Let's go back and think again about what it states there in the book of Daniel, where I brought up out of Assyria that forces from him shall arise. Forces from his seed shall arise. And back during that time, from the time that basically ISIS rose up and started there in Mosul, in Nineveh, and then moved into Assyria, etc., we had gone to great lengths to get everybody to understand that ISIS was and is those forces from the Assyrian, from his seed, that would rise. You know, prior to that, we'd looked at it and we thought, well, this is going to be the quote-unquote native, you know, Assyrians today, which they are predominantly Christian. It's not what it was telling us in the Greek text, though. It went into great detail to show us that from his seed, and that's where you had to go back into history and understand how it is that all those nations were uprooted and moved. Then all of a sudden it comes into complete 
understandable detail as in how in the world it is that ISIS is the force from him that arose. Now, taking this even further, and I had this up on my website at one point in time. I have the clip still here. There is a documentary on Al Jazeera News that talks about the formation and the beginnings of ISIS. And they state something very frightening at the end of the first video in that two-video um, two series documentary, which you can find on Al Jazeera's website by itself. And they stated that basically there was a quote-unquote pan-Arab that was the man behind the scenes that was giving all the orders to the new, the second leader that started ISIS that is going on now as we speak. But he was not Islamic. He spoke in the Muslim lingo, et cetera, et cetera, on down the line. But they made it even more crystal clear what they did with the film because they stated, you never saw who this guy was. He was always in the shadows, hiding. That's exactly what Psalm 83 tells us. He shall be hoping a lot. When you go through and break down all those Hebrew words, you'll find out that he's hidden in the shadows, assisting the sons of Lot. And the very beginning, very beginning first leader of ISIS, folks, he came out of Jordan. He was one of the sons of Lot before this new reiteration happened of ISIS that actually started during the occupation in Iraq, that's when the second formation started, where the new leader started plotting with those people in this prison camp as they started putting this together. As I said before, that's where the Assyrian was coming in. Nobody could figure out nor knew who this guy was. He was giving them direct orders. So now we have full-blown prophecy striking us right between the eyes. You cannot escape what's going on there. That's side one. Nineveh shall rise up in judgment. And then it goes on to tell us what? The queen of the south. Sheba. Saba. That's how this becomes important because now we have to understand who that seed of Saba is and how this ties in to where Muhammad was descended from. Now, I already picked up on this Quite a long time ago when I was actually doing the work on ISIS, I've done other extensive work concerning the uh, Hashashim, or what is known as the uh, Order of the Assassins, in ancient times, the Ishmaeli. I've done extensive work on the history in that period, on the period within the beginnings of Islam and so forth. And I had already figured this out just by looking at the historical documentation that Muhammad came from Yemen. This is just from the standard regular historical documentation. It was sitting there in broad daylight. I kept my mouth shut about this. I didn't say a word to Matthew about it. I kept to myself. I made mention of it when we did those podcasts on air that there is a little bit more to this, but I ain't going to go into this now. So I already recognized that this was indeed the case. Folks, he's a descendant of Saba, of Sheba. He's a descendant of the Queen of the South. Documentation. The more you start tearing it apart, you end up finding out, indeed, this is the case. Now, we have a quote here from a book that is uh, 
done by the author from, he's got a site that's called, let me see here, I believe it's the Religious Institute. .org. Uh, where do I have this one, folks? I want to make sure I give the proper website. Yes, it is called uh, ReligionResearchInstitute.org. And he wrote the book that is entitled uh, Islam in Light of History. And he goes on and basically traces all this through. And then I did some extensive work last night on top of it to verify his claims. Who is the tribe of Koresh from which Muhammad came? And when did Koresh occupy Mecca? The answers to this question are critical to our understanding of Islam and its claims. Koresh is a gathering of many and many families with no prior connections between them. They were gathered by Qasai, the eighth ancestor of Muhammad. Ibn al-Khabi, one of the most important Arab historians, said, The tribe of Koresh was a gathering of different families, all related to each other through matriarchal lines. Did you catch that, folks? Matriarchal? But it is not a tribe which began from one father or one mother or nursemaid. According to Al-Tabari, another of the biographers of Muhammad, he was helped by his half-brother on his mother's side, named Raza bin Rabla bin Haram. Raza belonged to the tribe of Katha, which was in Yemen. Armed with historical facts, we conclude that the tribe from which Muhammad belonged did exist prior to Qasai bin Khalid. Facts, we conclude that the tribe of Muhammad... Oops. Okay. We'll finish that statement. Belonged to Qasai bin Khalid, the eighth ancestor of Muhammad, who was a Yemeni. Since his half-brother was living in Yemen, we assume Qasai came from Yemen recently, and nothing is known about his ancestors. We only know... He was not part of a known tribe. We can also conclude that when he wanted to occupy the city, he was not backed by a tribe, something Arabians were careful to do when they planned a raid. Instead, Qasai bin Khalib gathered several Yemeni families with no tribal connections among them. This gathering later became known as Karish. Now, folks, you'll find out that especially there was one website that put up this entire blip that I'm taking directly from the book, which I read, um, that brings it up, and you'll go on to find out that you have immediately, somebody comes in and argues, no, this is not the case, that can't be. So I begin to look into all these claims. Let's see here. Um, You've got in the uh, Roman Byzantine writings uh, during the War of Justinian brings this out quite extensively as well. Let's see. See, we have one of these descended here from uh, Mahaji is one of ten sons of a uh, man named Saba whose name was Abad Shems. But the reason why it, he was called Saba was that he was the first among the Arabs to take captives. He was the son of Yashab bin Yarib, Katan, son of Taiman, son of Kaidor, son of Ishmael. Six of them, sons of Saba, Taman, went to Yemen. Kinad, Himyar, Emar, Azid, 
while four sons of Tashmael went to Shem, greater Syria, Lachem, Amelia, and Gassan. And, you know, basically on top of it, you have Muhammad states that most of the people of paradise will be from Majiz, Aslam, and Gafar. You will find out, at least I remember, bare minimum, two of those names trace right back to Yemen. Now, on top of it, you move into the site on the Kwatni of modern historiography. This is, um, quote-unquote, where they have this supposed split between the North Arabians, who claim they're descended from one tribe, um, the Adnites, which they claim was a direct descendant of Ishmael, and you have in the south where they claim they're not descended from there. That's where things become problematic again. According to modern historians, a traditional distinction between the Adnites and Quadnites lacks evidence and may have developed out of the later faction fighting during the Umayyad period. Now, let me see here. Ganaluka P. Perlin and the book uh, Citizenship in the Arab World Kin Religion and Nation State from page 30 states that the Arab-sized and Arabicizing Arabs, on the contrary, are believed to be the descendants of Ishmael through Adnan, but in the case, the genealogy does not match the biblical line exactly. The local Arabicized is due to the belief that Ishmael spoke Hebrew until he got to Mecca where he married a Yemeni woman and learned Arabic. But folks, the Bible tells us emphatically that Ishmael married an Egyptian woman. Okay, going further. Both genealogical lines go back to Shem, son of Noah. But only Adonites can claim Abraham as their ascendants and their lineage of Muhammad, the seal of prophets. Keltim al-Ambiya can therefore be traced to Abraham. Now listen to this, folks. Contemporary hista historiography unveiled the lack of inner coherence of the genealogical system and demonstrated that it finds insufficient matching evidence. The distinction between the Codnites and Adonites is believed to be a product of the Umayyad age when the war of factions, Al-Niza al-Hizabi, was raging in the young Islamic empire. Folks, this all begins to fall apart in light of history of this, uh, quote-unquote, this rift between the two. And as you end up finding out that there were historians that came at a later time because Muhammad only lists his, uh, his bloodline so many generations back, and he told him, you can't count past that. Well, it was a very short line of descendants that only lasted back to a specific state of time according to their amount of time that they lived. And it wasn't very long. And that's where these historians came in and they started creating new histories to trace this back to all the way back to Ishmael. And unfortunately, as you look more and more at these histories, it begins to fall apart over and over and over and over again. And that's exactly all the work that I went through previous to that's exactly what she states here in this quote from this book that the historiography unveiled a lack of inner coherence of this genealogical system and demonstrated that it finds insufficient matching evidence. Right at the beginning of it, it states this does not even line up with the genealogical match of the biblical line. All right, folks, we've had history toyed with again. And in a very 
crucial, crucial, crucial place. We had distortions come in about where Peron actually was. Okay, and they tried to bring you over to it being in Saudi Arabia with Mecca and so forth. But once again, the historical claims behind that it falls apart in light of all the documentation, even going back as far as Alexander the Great and even beyond. Because when the Assyrians came in there, they made no mention of it whatsoever. And the same goes with the Chaldeans, whom Nabadonius, which was descended from, and we did a program on this in video, Nabadonius was descended from the Queen of Babylon, who was an Assyrian. She was worshipping in Haran, and you'll even look at some of these other Chaldean histories now, and they're pointing it out. These last two kings were Assyrians. Okay, it was through her bloodline. She was an Assyrian. She birthed through her all the kings that came through that Chaldean empire. So once again, we have that matriarchal line, the seed of the woman, all of a sudden is being amplified again in that portion of history. And like I said before, he was essentially one of the last kings, but he moved into Arabia. He had to be hunted down by the Medes and Persians. Um, that's a whole long diatribe. And just as the Bible states, his son Belshazzar was left to rule over Chaldean Babylon at the time that Cyrus came in and took that kingdom while Darius the Mede was sitting there ruling at the exact same time. So this is documented in the Bible. It's documented in historical fact. And taking it even further, as I stated, you have going back to the Assyrian records and you have going back to the Babylonian records, even going up to the time of Nabadonius, there is no mention whatsoever of this place that they try to confuse you and tell you is Paran, which is now known as Mecca. It did not exist. And as you go through and you begin to look also, on top of it, in tracing the very bloodlines of Muhammad, you find out that it was through these tribes that came out of Yemen through the Sabian group that he was descended from. Taking it even a step forward, the two beginning armies and those tribes that fought with him at the beginning of the start of the religion were also Sabian. And this just keeps going in circles over and over and over again, folks. And when we have two prophecies back-to-back that nobody talks about in Matthew 12, telling us that Nineveh shall rise up that day in judgment, then it turns around and tells us the Queen of the South shall rise up that day in judgment. Proper connotations, because otherwise it makes no sense. In light of this, all of a sudden Yemen becomes very crucial and important in end-time prophecy. Now, as we look at all the wars that are raging, the big mega ones that have brought all the nations throughout the world together into this fight are coming straight through those seats. I'm going to take a break there and let Matthew chime in, and I don't know if we're going to, maybe we should go into overdrive here. No, that's, that's good. What, what you said so far... Has been right on time, right on target. You didn't go as far as I wanted you to because, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about the ports of call, 
shall we? For the Silk Road. Now, Brian made it perfectly clear that frankincense was also cultivated, ah yes, in India. Well, guess where their natural port of call would have been? Ah yes, Yemen. Ladies and gentlemen, Yemen. Let me rattle your cage a little bit, and I'm sorry because you're getting this information before Brian. Brian is busy doing other things, so I'm just going to share this with you. Brian, magnified in your mind, of course, Daniel, the 11th chapter in verse 31. Forces from him will arise. And desecrate the sanctuary, fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will be set upon the abomination of desolation. Apart from what this says in the Greek, I'm going to point something out to you. Forces here is, of course, H2220. And that means arm, which is figuratively used for forces or strength. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you now something that is to come. It has been called of late the X eclipse. It is coming on August the 21st. Please know and understand this. I have calculated the star, which is going to be directly over that spot where the two X's meet. At the time of the eclipse, using UTC, ladies and gentlemen, from 5.25 p.m. to 6.25 p.m., it goes right across the shoulders of the constellation you know as Boots. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I can see things you can't see because they're not going to tell you, but this in the English Wikipedia article. They're only going to point out that Homer was the first to call this boats, of course. It comes from the Greek for ox driver or herdsman. Let me tell you why it comes from the Greek. Because you can only see this, ladies and gentlemen, on the Hebrew version for the constellation for boots. The reason why they did this was because the Greeks knew that the big bear and the little bear, before they were called that, were bulls. And the shepherd led the bulls tied to the North Star around them, thus turning the sky on its axis. Let me say this again. If you want this information... You're going to have to go, once again, 
to the boat's Wikipedia article and click the Hebrew, and they tell you in the last paragraph of that article. But I already knew it because I can read both the Hebrew and the Greek. Now take note. Do you not know that this was part of how we cracked, ladies and gentlemen, the ancient languages? You see, because everybody knows that in Egypt, everybody knows this. It had the same exact meaning as the Hebrew did. It's arm, and it is symbolically used as strength, power, dominion. You can uh, get this information. Go to Wikipedia, to the English version, and type in four-leg of ox. And it tells you that of course, the pharaohs used it. So that's why boats originally was called the foreleg. Let me go back to that verse one more time so you can understand what, what I'm trying to tell you. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 says this, Forces from him will arise. That first word there for forces is H2220. It also means the constellation of what you call boots. That is exactly the star that's going to be over that X that those two eclipses are going to make. The first one comes in August. The second one is seven years later. In that X, it is boats that marks the spot. And ladies and gentlemen, don't you understand that the Lord your God just prophetically, through the Hebrew and the Greek, I'm not going to discuss the Greek, because in here, he's very emphatic about what he's talking about. He gives you the technical data of what's going to go on with parallax. But here in the Hebrew, he points to you Exactly what's going to happen, the same exact way that he told the Magi why the star stood over Christ the King. I just told you. It's that constellation of boots that stands over this X eclipse over the United States. Brian, we are into overdrive. If you have more that we can cover, you can. I suggest we cut it right here after your closing comments. But I um, leave that decision up to you. Okay, well then, we have we've got quite, quite a, a few bit. more very important details. Okay, uh, then you need to do that. You need to do that then. Uh, so I will go back to muting my mic, and I think that. Once again, I have provided a sila moment so that everybody can set back up. Now, we do not have another break music that we can take. I haven't uploaded one. But I gave you pause enough to take a mental, spiritual break away from the fantastic amount of data that Brian's provided you with. So you've at least had that for a break. I 
I gave you a sell-all moment. So, Brian, jump right back in here and get to it. We need to put the nail in this coffin. All right, well, that's, you know, touching quickly. Okay, folks, taking it to its extent, and what Matthew just dropped wasn't a surprise to me. We actually had this discussion a few times here in the last week, but the Assyrian and boots go hand in hand. Arcturus, boots, those two constellations, are not star and constellation, go hand in hand. But, I mean, even, you know, touching on here quick on roots of where things move, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want folks, you need to take and pay close attention to this. Okay, starting up here with, uh, I wanted to point this out for a long time, uh, in Genesis 11. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Folks, it points out they came from the east. There's been a lot of work that's been done locating where Shinar was and Babel was built, tying it in with Enrikar and uh, Nimrod. And you'll basically find out this is in the deep south, uh, what do you call that, Um, spot going right here above the Persian Gulf. If they came from the east, folks, well, you know, there's some stating they came in from the Zagros Mountains that's not completely to be thrown out the window But if you keep going over to the east, folks, you're going to find you're coming into Afghanistan and Pakistan as well. So that does, once again, it ties us around through India. And as what I even find more interesting, as I've been looking through some of this DNA and genetic research, trying to wrap my mind around how this whole thing works, it's been found in this. They have the whole, quote unquote, out of Africa theory, but they have a whole other line they found now that they can't explain because it all comes out. Through India, this massive genetic trail where all the roots of all these people are coming from, and they're still in those circles, are scratching their head because, of course, they've got the out of Africa thing at the foremost and forefront. Whereas now their genetic material is telling them a whole different story, and they can't they can't figure it out. So you almost have to giggle to an extent, but it makes absolute sense in light of what the Bible has been trying to tell us all along. Now, going back into, on top of it, where do we have other important prophecies concerning uh, Sabah or Sheba? We actually have two very important points that you're not going to see in the standard English text or even, you know, ones translated here from the Hebrew. In uh, Daniel 11, verse 41, it states here in the regular text, he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. Now, here's the English translation of the Greek, because the Greek literally says Saba. And he will break in pieces and pass through and come to the land of Saba, or as here in the uh, Charles Thompson, Sabiem, and many will be weak, but these will escape out of his hand, namely Edom, Moab, and the children of Ammon. 
Now, that's altogether rather peculiar, folks, isn't it? Because you will actually find this on top of it for the Greek word. When you start looking at south, it's going to be bringing you over to Daniel 11 time and time again. And then we have the same thing come up again in Daniel 11, verse 45. Read it first in the standard English rendering, and he shall plant tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet shall shall he come to his end, and none shall help him. Um, this one is usual. Let's see. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet his end shall come to his end with none help him, etc. Yet here's what we got in the Greek. He will pitch his tent at if Indonis between the seas on the holy mountain, Saba, then he will come to his portion. There is none to deliver him. Now, why do we have 1141 and 1145 both amplifying Yemen or Saba? Okay, folks, is Yemen important? Let me ask that again. The Greek is telling us it's very important. Just to pull up those references quick here on south that come up in Daniel 11. I believe that's the proper word. South on top of it here from the same Greek word that is used there in Matthew 12. Comes up in uh, Daniel 11, verse 5, verse 6, 19, 11, 11, 11, 14, 11, 15, 11, 25, and 11, 40. It's all over and encoded in Daniel 11. And two of those verses, like I stated, you'll read further down, and all of a sudden you're told Saba. So again, it's there in broad daylight. Now let's move forward quickly to what has transpired with the Yemen civil war that started in 2015. Now, you'll basically break this down, and this is a fight between the House of Saud or the uh, Saudi Arabians and the Shiite forces that are in Yemen as well. And they are arguing about this right and left and back and forth, um, stating, are these are these people aligned to Iran? You know, that that's fiction. They'll try to tell you one story. And in other places, they'll tell you that they are aligned with Iran. All right. Put this point in. This event happened on March 21st. Remember that. Not exactly on that day. March 21 of 2015. Um, let's see here, starting with this, the political developments. Hadi reiterated a speech on 21 March that he was the legitimate president of Yemen and declared we will restore security to the country. Hoist the flag of Yemen in Sana instead of the Iranian flag. He also officially declared Aden to be Yemen's economic and temporary capital due to the Houthi occupation of Sana, which 
he pledged would be retaken. Now you go in and you trace out where this source came from. That's exactly what was going on. The Iranian flag was pitched there. Now, like I said before, remember that date I brought up? Remember the Blood Moon Jubilee, everybody? I found it ironic over here on the quote-unquote Blood Moon Prophecy Wikipedia that they managed to slip a solar eclipse in the midst. 2015 of March. March 20th, according to our calendar. Solar eclipse of March 20, 2015 appeared right in the midst of the four eclipses. Two on one side, right deadpan in the middle, this solar eclipse happened. On the other side, the last two moons in the Blood Moon Jubilee. Right deadpan in the middle of this, all of a sudden this eclipse happens. Yemen goes into civil war. We've talked about the waning of Saudi Arabia and the rising of the ram with the Persian and Median Empire, folks. There's more stories that keep continuing to be released. There's a massive economic hit on top of it that Saudi Arabia just released in the last few days that said they're in big trouble, folks. And right there in Yemen is in broad daylight that those Shiite forces are indefinitely indeed aligned with Iran. Yemen is a major factor, folks, in everything that is going on. Anybody trying to tell you anything to the contrary, they need to look at everything all over again. This is a mega flashpoint as we speak. The United States is in there dropping bombs for Pete's sakes. They have been for ages on, and one of the first moves of this administration was a botched raid into Yemen. And we've had refugees killed off the coast here recently, and this just keeps going for days. Folks, Yemen is excruciatingly important. These details of everything that has happened since March 21st of 2015, which was marked off by an eclipse, I don't know what to tell you, other than the fact that if you've been told and you have gotten into the mindset that this place ain't important, I can show you bajillion texts that completely tell you something contrary to what 